Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 155, St. Gregory VII. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So today is the day. Today we get to talk about St. Gregory VII, or as we've already known him, Hildebrand, the great monk. And he is a big deal in the history of the church. In fact, he's been so important, so consequential that it's taken me months to write this episode, and I'm certain I'm going to leave a lot out. I've actually been quite nervous about this episode because putting together even just the briefest sketch of his life with so many qualified people have already done, and there's so many more extensive accounts, it's 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 hard to see if I can get everything right, but here it goes. So Hildebrand has already played a huge role in our story so far. He may be one of the most important people in the history of the church, to the point that this entire reform period is called the Gregorian Reform after him. Indeed, in a real way, you could group church history in the Middle Ages into before Hildebrand and after Hildebrand. In fact, you could do all of church history as that, before Hildebrand and after Hildebrand. Thanks to his reforms, Things never got as bad as they were in the Dark Ages. They got bad. We'll see that in the future. But they never got that bad. So though we've gotten to know Hildebrand over the past several episodes, he's been for the most part in the background, working things out, getting reform-minded people into the right places. So let's bring him to the fore, and we're going to follow his journey from the beginning to the papacy. Hildebrand was born in Tuscany around 1025. We know little about his family other than at some point they moved to Rome and that supposedly his uncle Lawrence was the abbot of a monastery in Rome, Santa Maria in Aventino, and that that was a daughter house of the great reforming monastery of Cluny. Now, eventually, Hildebrand entered the monastery himself and began his studies with many prominent churchmen at the time. And one of his most important teachers was John Gratian, the upright reforming archpriest of San Giovanni a Porta Latina. John Gratian, if you remember back to episode 147, later became Pope Gregory VI. If you remember, though Gregory VI was a great reforming priest, he took the name Gregory, in fact, after Gregory the Great, to signal that intention. The way he became Pope looked a lot like and probably was simony. And eventually he was asked to resign slash he was deposed by Henry III at the Council of Sutri. Anyway, John Gratian found a role for Hildebrand during his brief pontificate by putting him in charge of cleaning up the pilgrim traffic at St. Peter's Basilica and other sites in Rome. Evidently, pilgrims were being taken advantage of and, and even threatened with violence by local nobles and other hucksters who wanted to use the sacred sites to just make a quick buck. Hildebrand pursued reform here with vigor and zeal to allow the process of pilgrimage to Rome to be truly a spiritual one and not a material one. But it would not last. Gregory VI, as we know, was deposed and he went into exile in Germany and Hildebrand followed him. Now we next hear of Hildebrand moving to the monastery of Cluny in 1047 at the death of Gregory VI. Throughout his life, he asserted his love of monastic solitude and prayer. And he was particularly drawn to Cluny and its great abbot at the time, St. Odilio. St. Odilio died in 1049 and was replaced by Hugh the Great, another tremendous abbot and one who will play a role in our story going forward. But in 1049, someone else came to Cluny, the newly selected Pope, Bruno of Egesheim, or as we know him, St. Leo IX. While at Cluny, he had his famous interaction with Hildebrand, which you talked about in that episode about St. Leo IX, who initially refused to go with him because of his concern that he was just being installed by the emperor as Pope rather than being elected by the clergy and the people of Rome. 
St. Leo, of course, he took that rebuke to heart and he dressed as a pilgrim and he went to Rome, humbly asking for the Romans' assent to his election as the, to the papacy. And Hildebrand decided to go with him. And from then on, he's played a huge role behind the scenes, pushing for reform in every papacy in which he served and involved in most major reform initiatives. St. Leo IX ordained Hildebrand a subdeacon, despite his protestations that he didn't want to be ordained just to remain a monk. And in particular, in 1054, he was sent to Tours in France to investigate the controversy between Berengar and Lanfranc about the Eucharist. And while he was there, St. Leo IX died, and the Romans waited until Hildebrand got back to Rome from France before the selection of the next pope. Hildebrand himself refused to be elected, but then he went on mission on behalf of the people of Rome to the Holy Roman Emperor, which led to the election of Pope Victor II. When the next pope was elected, Stephen IX, he was elected and consecrated without the approval of the emperor. And to smooth over that situation, the pope sent Hildebrand to the young Henry IV, well, really to his mother, the regent Agnes, to explain why they elected Stephen IX when they did and to try and improve relations with the imperial court. When Stephen IX died, Hildebrand was still off in Germany, and Stephen made the cardinals promise to wait until Hildebrand returned before they selected the next pope. And if you remember, before Hildebrand got back, the Roman nobles who did not like this reform movement and several cardinals met together and forced the election of John of Alletri as the antipope Benedict X. Hildebrand, meanwhile, was joined by the majority of the cardinals who had fled Rome, and they elected Nicholas II, this time with imperial approval and support. And so Hildebrand brought Nicholas to Rome and drove out Benedict X. With the election of Nicholas II, we see Hildebrand quite active in promoting the reform movement in Rome, and in particular with several actions which seemed to further a growing rift. Nicholas II, if you remember, promulgated a decree which outlined the procedures for papal elections. It stated that the cardinal bishops were the ones who elected the pope, and then the rest of the cardinals confirmed the election, and then the emperor had some sort of other role in confirming the election. And it's notable because the emperor's role is not really that active. It's basically honorific. Now, this is a bold move, and I didn't touch on it enough during the episode on Nicholas II. The emperor always helped choose the pope. In fact, for centuries, Henry IV's father had deposed three popes and elected a fourth at the Council of Sutri back when Gregory, Sylvester, and Benedict were all claiming to be pope. And now, one generation later, the Holy See is saying that the emperor doesn't really have a say in all this. This has been seen by historians as a ramp-up of the reformers, and especially Hildebrand's goal to remove the spiritual power of the papacy out from under the secular power of the emperor, and in Hildebrand's mind, to reverse those two. The pope is the vicar of Christ, the supreme spiritual authority. He should have authority over even the emperor himself. Now, we know for sure that based on Hildebrand's later interactions with Henry IV and his uncompromising assertion of papal prerogative, that least later in Hildebrand's life, he wanted to split from the empire. Now, it's unclear if this moment here with the decree of Nicholas II was intentionally meant to be a slap in the face for the emperor and intentionally meant to create this rift between the reforming papacy and the imperial court. But Henry IV certainly didn't like it, and it didn't help to smooth over the growing tension between Rome and Germany. Now, the second move in Nicholas's papacy, which Hildebrand helped bring about, was the alliance with the Normans. If you can no longer rely on the emperor as being the supporter of the papacy, and indeed, if you saw in the future uh, conflict with the emperor, you would need some other temporal supporter. And so Hildebrand saw that the Normans could provide that role. They were new to the scene. They wanted the legitimacy that an alliance with the papacy could bring about. And so he helped facilitate Nicholas II's new alliance with the Normans and was sent by the pope to prepare the way for the synods that Nicholas would hold in southern Italy. 
Now, on top of that, during Nicholas's papacy, Hildebrand was raised to being the archdeacon of the Church of Rome, and it was clear that he was really this driving force behind the scenes in this papacy. Which brings us to the election of Alexander II, which you remember from last time was fraught with discord despite the decrees of Nicholas II. Honorius II was elected antipope up in Germany, and Anselm de Baggio was elected Alexander II down in Italy. And if you remember, most of this dispute was settled by Anno of Cologne after the coup of Kaiserswerth. However, Hildebrand helped return Alexander to Rome through the alliance with the Normans. Which then brings us to 1073 and the death of Alexander II. Hildebrand as archdeacon was the one given the responsibility of yet again managing the election of the next pope. And though he said that the election needed to wait till after the funeral of Alexander, during the funeral procession, the people shouted out, Hildebrand for Pope. He was then carried off to St. Peter's in chains, and he was elected, probably not in accord with the decrees of Nicholas II, but really by popular acclamation. Now, thankfully, we've preserved firsthand an account of this election recorded in the official register of the Holy See. I'll read you a little bit of it. It starts with the date, and then it says, We, the cardinal clerks of the Holy Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church, acolytes, subdeacons, deacons, and presbyters, in the presence of venerable bishops and abbots supported by their priests and monks, and amid the acclamations of vast crowds of both sexes and various ranks, assembled in the church of St. Peter ad Vincula, do choose for our pastor and supreme pontiff a man of piety, eminent for learning, strong in adversity, moderate in prosperity, and according to the words of the apostle, of good character, of pure life, modest, sober, chaste, given to hospitality, ruling well his own house, etc. Namely, Archdeacon Hildebrand, whom we choose to be and call now forever Gregory, Pope, and Apostolicus. Do you agree? We agree. Do you desire him? We desire him. Do you approve him? We approve him. So Hildebrand took the name Gregory VII and proceeded to write to various supporters and rulers regarding his election. We have a text of his letter that he sent that day to Desiderius, the abbot of Monte Cassino. He writes, But as I am confined to my bed, completely tired out, and cannot properly choose my words, I will not tell you the story of my anxieties. I will only ask you in the name of Almighty God to beg the brethren and sons who are under your charge, and to call upon them out of your affection for me, to pray God on my behalf. So apparently he was elected Pope, and then the anxieties of the office caused him to be sick for a while. But then he eventually got better. Now with Gregory as Pope, we have to discuss a little bit the changing situation in the Roman Curia and the Church as a whole. The Reform Party was starting to divide between two groups. Now the more extreme group, which was kind of represented by Gregory VII, they saw the reform of the Church as almost a battle to be fought, and who would more and more seek not only spiritual and papal means to bring about reform, but also political ones. For example, they supported back in the day uh, the conquest of William the Conqueror because he was going to bring about reform to the Church of England and they saw that this was a good opportunity to help bring reform to an Anglo-Saxon church that needed it. Now, they were opposed, opposed is a strong word, but they were uh, opposed by a more moderate reform group, which was slightly more pro-imperial. Now, some cracks had begun to be seen in earlier papacies, especially between St. Peter Damien, who represented the more moderate faction, and Hildebrand. Hildebrand certainly had a fire for reform, and he did not moderate that passion as pope. He saw that papal authority was necessary for the continued reform of the church, and that authority needed to be asserted where possible over and above secular authority. Now, this would lead to a crisis in the church, which we will talk about for several episodes to come. It's a direct conflict with the Holy Roman Empire and with Henry IV, 
which historians have called the investiture crisis. Now, we've already seen how tensions were building between Henry IV and the papacy, and it didn't help that he was kidnapped by a powerful papal ally and um, when he was younger. And the breaking point happened around 1075, after Gregory convened a synod in Rome to promote the reform of the church. Now, the synod made the usual condemnations of simony and those who broke the promise of celibacy. And while many similar synods had occurred in the past, this one explicitly excommunicated several high-ranking advisors of Henry IV who were guilty of one or more of these offenses. Now, added to this was the condemnation of the imperially appointed Archbishop of Milan, which despite several visitations was still recovering from the battle between the reformers and the more imperial sympathizers. So it's uncertain what role lay investitures played in the Synod of 1075. This crisis is called the investiture crisis because it's believed that in 1075, Gregory forbade the process by which a temporal lord, for example, the king of Germany, invested bishops and abbots with the symbols of their offices. So when the bishop was ordained or installed, he was given the crozier as a symbol of his spiritual office, not by another bishop, as you would see in an investiture today, but by the temporal lord. And it's a small point, but for society which lived and breathed symbolically, it showed that the bishop was subservient to the temporal lord who gave him his role, who gave him his authority. And it often coincided with the bishop having paid for the office from the temporal lord to have it bestowed or his family paying for it. Historians generally see this as the spark which started the crisis, given the crisis the name it had, but it's unclear how much that was the case at the very beginning, or if this was one more thing that added to a litany of reasons for the break with Germany. The 1075 Synod didn't expressly condemn lay investitures at the outset. It was there in the background, but it wasn't expressly condemned. Now, on top of all this, Gregory, not long after the Synod in 1075, wrote a letter to Henry explicitly chastising him for continuing to associate with those who had been excommunicated. I'm going to read it. He writes, For thou art said knowingly to exercise fellowship with those excommunicated by a judgment of the apostolic chair and by sentence of a synod. If this be true, thou dost know thyself that thou mayest receive the favor neither of the divine nor of the apostolic benediction, Unless those who have been excommunicated being separated from thee and compelled to do penance, thou do first with condign repentance and satisfaction, seek absolution and indulgence for the transgression. Therefore we counsel thy highness that, if thou dost feel thyself guilty in this matter, thou do seek the advice of some canonical bishop with speedy confession. So he's basically saying, why are you still hanging around with these people? You should go to confession. Do it right now. Now, this letter and the stricter decrees of 1075 did not sit well in Germany. Several of Henry's supporters and advisors denounced Gregory as being elected illegitimately, and a diet held in Worms in early 1076 did the same thing. Henry wrote back to Gregory a very, very strongly worded letter. And because it's epic and strongly worded, I'll quote a bunch of it here. Henry, king, not through usurpation, but through the holy ordination of God to Hildebrand at present, not pope, but false monk. Such greeting as this hast thou merited through thy disturbances, inasmuch as there is no grade in the church which thou hast omitted to make a partaker, not of honor, but of confusion, not of benediction, but of malediction. For to mention few and especial cases out of many, not only hast thou feared to lay hands upon the ruler of the holy church, the anointed of the Lord, the archbishops, namely bishops and priests, but thou hast trodden them underfoot like slaves, ignorant of what their master is doing. 
Thou hast won favor from the common herd by crushing them. Thou hast looked upon all of them as knowing nothing, upon thy sole self, moreover, as knowing all things. Now, after a litany of more complaints and accusations, he continues by quoting scripture, saying, For himself, the true Pope, Peter, also exclaims, Fear God, honor the king. But thou, who dost not fear God, dost dishonor me, his appointed one. Wherefore, St. Paul, when he has not spared an angel of heaven, if he shall preach otherwise, has not accepted thee also, who dost teach otherwise upon earth. For he says, If anyone, either I or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than that which has been preached to you, he shall be damned. Thou, therefore, damned by this curse and by the judgment of all our bishops and by our own, descend and relinquish the apostolic chair which thou hast usurped. Let another ascend the throne of Peter, who shall not practice violence under the cloak of religion, but shall teach the sound doctrine of St. Peter. I, Henry, King, by the grace of God, do say unto thee, together with all our bishops, descend, descend, to be damned throughout the ages." Okay, so that's Henry's response to St. Gregory VII, and it is strong. Now, this letter was accompanied by another from the bishops of Germany, which concluded by saying, We renounce the obedience which we never promised to thee, nor shall we in future at all observe it. And since, as thou didst publicly proclaim, not one of us has been to thee thus far as a bishop, so also shalt thou henceforth be pope for none of us. Now, events moved quickly, and after having received these responses from Germany, Gregory moved to excommunicate Henry in February of 1076. In his decree of excommunication, he writes, O St. Peter, chief of the apostles, incline to us. I beg thy holy ears, and hear me, thy servant, whom thou hast nourished from infancy, and whom until this day thou hast freed from the hands of the wicked, who have hated and do hate me for the, my faithfulness to thee. He continues, on the strength of this belief, therefore, for the honor and security of thy church, in the name of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I withdraw through thy power and authority from Henry the King, son of Henry the Emperor, who has risen against thy church with unheard of insolence, the rule over the whole kingdom of the Germans and over Italy. And I absolve all Christians from the bonds of the oath, which they have made or shall make to him. And I forbid anyone to serve him as king. For it is fitting that he who strives to lessen the honor of thy church should himself lose the honor which belongs to him. And since he has scorned to obey as a Christian and has not returned to God, whom he had deserted, holding intercourse with the excommunicate, practicing manifold iniquities, spurning my commands, which as thou dost bear witness, I issued to him for his own salvation, separating himself from thy church and striving to rend it, I bind him in thy stead with the chain of the anathema, and leaning on thee, I so bind that the people may know and have proof that thou art Peter, and above thy rock the Son of the living God hath built his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, so again, we need to place ourselves in medieval Europe to understand what a big deal this is. The feudal system was based on a series of oaths which bound a lord to his subjects and vice versa, and which were witnessed by God. The lord owed his allegiance and duty to the king, because in the presence of the church, he had promised respect and obedience to him. You know, the closest thing we have to something like this today is the promise of, of obedience made during an ordination ceremony. The priest puts his hands in his Lord's hands, in this case, his bishops, and he promises respect and obedience to him and his successors. Now, a very similar ceremony occurred among feudal lords. And while one might suspect that many were cynical and saw all this as a ceremony having very little to do with real politics, for a civilization that really did believe in God and really did recognize spiritual authority, many people took these obligations seriously. 
So what the Pope is doing here is using his authority to re- release these feudal lords from their oaths. And again, you might think, well, if they're going to rebel, they won't, won't they just do that anyway? Wouldn't this action really not make any difference? But again, at this time, these oaths meant something. And this release by the Pope really did make a difference. Other popes are going to do this in the future and will show how much of a difference these things can mean. So now the lords of Germany didn't owe their allegiance to Henry. And for many of them, this was the perfect excuse to stop following his orders. They wanted to anyway in the past, but now the Pope has permitted them to do so without harming their allegiance that they've pledged in the sight of God. And most especially the Saxons in northern Germany, who Henry had just subjugated, used this as an opportunity to rebel again. And one by one, many of his supporters started abandoning him. Finally, a group of nobles in Germany demanded that Henry make peace with Gregory. And if he didn't do it by February 22, 1077, they would depose him and replace him with a new emperor. So Henry was in a tight spot, and this leads to one of the most dramatic incidents in the history of the medieval papacy. Gregory had been invited by the German nobles to a synod to be held at Augsburg, and he was on his way north from Italy. Henry had been requested to attend the same synod, but, you know, for obvious reasons, he didn't want to attend. Instead, he decided to go to Gregory directly and make his peace and reassert his power over Germany. Gregory was at the time staying with Matilda of Tuscany, who was one of the powerful pro-papal nobles in northern Italy, at her castle at Canossa. Now, the winter was a difficult one, and Henry struggled to make it over the Alps to the castle to meet the Pope. One chronicler at the time writes, When they had with great difficulty reached the summit of the mountain, there was no possibility of advancing further. For the mountainside was precipitous, and so they said, slippery because of the icy cold and seemed to rule out entirely any hope of descent. In that situation, the men tried to overcome every danger using their own strength, now crawling on their hands and feet, now clinging to the shoulders of their guides, and also occasionally when a foot slipped in on an icy surface, falling and rolling down for a considerable distance. At last, with difficulty and for a time at serious risk of their lives, they reached the plains. So on January 25th, 1077, Henry IV, after this arduous climb over the Alps, arrived outside the castle at Canossa. Gregory himself described what happened in a letter to the Church of Rome. He writes, He came at length of his own accord with a few followers, showing nothing of hostility or boldness to the town of Canossa where we were tarrying. And there, having laid aside all the belongings of royalty, wretchedly, with bare feet and clad in wool, he continued for three days to stand before the gates of the castle. Nor did he desist from imploring with many tears the aid and consolation of the apostolic mercy until he had moved all of those who were present there, and whom the report of it reached to such pity and depth of compassion that, interceding for him with many prayers and tears, all wondered indeed at the unaccustomed hardness of our heart while some actually cried out that we were exercising not the gravity of apostolic severity, but the cruelty, as it were, of a tyrannical ferocity. So the Holy Roman Emperor stood barefoot in the snow outside of the castle, doing penance and asking for forgiveness. Now this is a big moment in the history of the papacy, in which an emperor is submitting to the authority of the church, and doing so in a dramatic and physical way. Now Gregory left him out there for three days, to do penance for what he had done. And Gregory, finally, after those three days, led him into the castle, revoked his decree of excommunication, and admonished him to go to the proposed council in Augsburg to reconcile with his nobles. Henry swore an oath to support the Pope on top of all of that. And it seems like Gregory and the papacy is triumphant. But this triumph by Gregory would not last. 
and many saw it as a pyrrhic victory after the fact, with Henry continuing to grow in resentment for what he had been made to do. This is not the end of the conflict between Henry and the papacy, not by a long shot. Now, Henry's position in Germany was not fixed by this debasement. The nobles who opposed him still opposed him, despite his dramatic penance. They elected a noble named Rudolf as German king, and Henry had to fight a whole civil war for the next year or so to regain his throne. Gregory maintained neutrality through most of this conflict, though some of his legates sided at various times against Henry. I won't go into all the details about this civil war, though Gregory did send legates to Henry to try and mediate it towards the end. And gradually, Gregory gained the upper hand over Rudolf, and as he did so, he started to demand papal help in finishing off his opponent. In the meantime, Gregory returned to Rome, and he continued his reforming push. Several more synods were held in Rome, the most notable being the Synod of 1078, which was the first to explicitly condemn lay investiture, with a decree which stated, We decree that no one of the clergy shall receive the investiture with a bishopric or abbey or church from the hand of an emperor or king or of any lay person, male or female. But if he shall presume to do so, he shall clearly know that such investiture is bereft of apostolic authority and that he himself shall lie under excommunication until fitting satisfaction shall have been rendered. Now, a second synod was held in Lent of 1080, which likewise condemned lay investiture and excommunicated any ruler who took part in it. Henry himself sent ambassadors to Rome during that synod, demanding that the Pope excommunicate Rudolf and assert Henry's rights as emperor. And he said, if you don't do that, I may just have to depose you and elect a new Pope. Now, Gregory himself responded by turning around and stating that, well, if that's the case, Rudolf's going to be the rightful king of Germany, and Henry was once again excommunicated. Now, Henry responded by following through on his threat. He called a synod of bishops in Brixen, which is now in northern Italy, but then was German territory. And at that synod, he had the bishops assembled, excommunicate the pope, declare him depose, and elected an antipope. The archbishop of Ravenna was the man elected antipope. He was a man named Guibert, and Guibert took the name Clement III, specifically calling to mind the last Clement, Clement II, who Henry's father had appointed after the Council of Sutri when he deposed three claimants to the papacy. Now, I'll read you a little bit of their declaration, which lists all sorts of complaints against Gregory, and it concludes with, Not only Rome, indeed, but the whole Roman world bears witness that he was not chosen by God, but that he forced his way most imprudently by violence, fraud, and bribery. For his fruits betray their root, and his works manifest his intent, inasmuch as he subverts the order of the church, has perturbed the rule of a Christian emperor, tries to kill the body and soul of the Catholic and Pacific king, defends as king a perjurer and a traitor, has sown discord among the united, strife among the peaceful, scandals among brothers, divorce among husbands and wives, and has shattered whatever of rest he has he found being enjoyed by those leading a holy life. Therefore we, congregated together as been said by God's authority, trusting in the legates and letters of the 19 bishops who were assembled at Mainz on the holy day of last Pentecost, do decree against this same most brazen Hildebrand, who preaches sacrilege and arson, who defends perjury and homicide, who questions the Catholic and apostolic faith concerning the body and blood of our Lord, who is an ancient disciple of the heretic Beringer, a manifest believer in dreams and divinations, a necromancer dealing with the spirit of prophecy and therefore a wanderer from the true faith, that he shall be canonically deposed and expelled, and unless hearing this, he descend from that seat forever damned. So Gregory's response was articulated in a letter to the Bishop Herman of Metz, 
which is famous for its articulation of and his understanding of papal authority. And I'll just quote one section because I've been reading lots of letters. Gregory writes, But to, the re- to return to the matter in hand is not the dignity like this founded by laymen, even by those who do not know God, subject to that dignity which he, the province of God Almighty has in his own honor founded and given to the world. For his son, even as he undoubtedly believed to be God and man, so is he considered the highest priest, the head of all priests, sitting on the right hand of the Father and always interceding for us. And he despised the secular kingdom, which makes the sons of this world swell with pride, and came of his own will to the priesthood of the cross. Who does not know that kings and leaders are sprung from those who, ignorant of God by pride, plunder, perdify, murders, in a word, by almost every crime, the devil, who is the prince of this world, urging them on, as it were, having striven with blind? So this synod in Brixen coincided with another victory for Henry, the death of his rival Rudolf on the battlefield in late 1080. So now Henry, unopposed politically, had the time to concentrate his wrath on Rome. So in 1081, he marched on Rome and finally brought about its subjugation in 1084. Gregory fled to Norman territory in Salerno, and Guibert, the antipope, took over in Rome, crowning Henry IV, Holy Roman Emperor, on March 27th. Now, Gregory, meanwhile, had to spend his, the rest of his papacy in exile among the Normans, setting up what will become a pattern as this crisis continues in future emperor episodes. When the emperor sets up an antipope, the pope runs to the Normans for protection and help. Now, it's a far cry from just a couple of years earlier when the emperor submitted himself to the authority of the pope. Now the pope is driven from Rome, an antipope is in its place, and who will remain there for some time, and the emperor is triumphant. So there in exile, the Pope continued to maintain his position in Pope, but many began to desert him. So finally, in the midst of all this sorrow out in Salerno in exile, Gregory VII breathed his last on May 25, 1085. Now before our customary conclusion, let's take some time to evaluate the papacy of Gregory VII. The monk Hildebrand and the Pope Gregory clearly deserve our thanks as Catholic Christians, as one of the moving forces behind the reform of the Church in the 11th century. This era in the papacy is called by historians justly as the Gregorian reform, and thanks to it, we are out of the Dark Ages, and the worst excesses of papal and clerical corruption are behind us. Never again, God willing, will we have to witness something like the cadaver synod, or the horrible nature of the control of Maritzia over the papacy that we talked about in past episodes. Gregory presumed reform with all his being. I think, though, that we can justly say that at times that zeal did him harm, and perhaps he lacked diplomacy at times which would have made the, that reforming zeal more effective. Now, the investiture crisis we will see will end with the triumph of the papacy. But in the short term, this brashness of St. Gregory Seventh led to a conflict where perhaps a more diplomatic approach would have brought about a more smooth and thorough reform without the conflict with the emperor. Now, regardless, the overall view of Gregory's life has to take into account the dramatic difference between the papacy before and after his appearance on the scene. We first introduced Hildebrand in episode 147, when he was recruited by Gregory VI to help reform the church in Rome. Right before that episode, we were talking about the excesses of the profligate Benedict IX. And now, after Hildebrand's influence has fully been felt in Rome, we have a series of saintly and blessed popes who will continue that work of reform. Now, Gregory was not always perfect. Saints are not required to be perfect. And many historians believe that he was too strident in some areas. But he was an incredible man in the history of the church. And on his deathbed, 
he is reported to have said, With all my powers, I have tried to see that the Holy Church, the Bride of God, Our Lady and Mother, might return to the beauty which is rightly hers and remain free, chaste, and Catholic. And if anyone in history can have claimed to accomplish this goal, it was Gregory VII. He was canonized a saint on the 24th of May, 1728, and he was buried in the Cathedral of Salerno, where his epitaph states, I have loved justice and hated iniquity, therefore I die in exile. He was succeeded by another holy reforming pope, Blessed Victor III, and we will talk about his papacy and the attempt to free the church from the emperor and the antipope next week. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on iTunes. Thank you and God bless you.